I don't mind pointing out how red you turn when I do things like that, too. It's excellent. So it's somewhere in the middle of the afternoon on the day that Jesus was crucified. And obviously, it's an intense environment. Guys are playing bingo for his clothes at the foot of the cross. And people are hurling insults at him. Religious leaders are making accusations as if it's enough to be despised. He's on the cross and <gasps> trying to draw every single breath because the crucifixion is so incredibly painful and causes someone to die from asphyxiation. And in the midst of <gasps> this criminal on the cross next to him says, Will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? In the midst of all that, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. I tell you the aletia. Today, you will be with me in paradise. The one who made paradise said, you'll be with me in paradise. You might have different images of paradise. I think of paradise as a tropical environment. Especially after this winter. <laughs> it has the feeling of the tropics, doesn't it, when you think paradise? Paradise is warm, 80-degree temperatures. Low humidity. Vegetation that's extremely lush. We step into that scene in the first chapter of Genesis. Perfect creation. Paradise as we can't imagine. Incredibly lush trees. A light mist in the air. The brilliant sunlight streaming through the branches. And there in the midst of this garden, a sculptor is at work. And he's forming, and he's shaping, and he's carving. But for now, it's just a 200-pound chemical mixture. Later, he has the form of a man. Let's step away from that and look at Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. There's Bibles in front of you in the pew racks. By the way, if you don't own your own Bible and you'd like to take one of those Bibles with you, feel free to do that. I gave one out this last week to a guy who's seeking to know God who just stopped into the church and wanted to know more about who this God is. And he's an attorney. And he said, uh, I want to understand more about what's going on here. And so I gave him the Bible and I said, read John chapter 3 where there's an attorney who came to spend time with Jesus by the name of Nicodemus. And uh, he called me back and said, uh, I've read the book of John, and now I've read Matthew and Mark, and I want to read Luke also. Um, cool. I'm thrilled. Excellent. John, uh, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth which has life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Created in perfection, living in paradise, eating fruit from the very tree that the hand of God had planted, eating vegetables from the garden that God had planted. Paradise. At this point, We don't even know the names of the individuals that God has created. We just know the facts. We're looking at the earliest moment in time for creation of our species. You can't go back any further than that. And it's in that remarkable environment, pristine air, crisp, cool water, lush vegetation, that God says this, in that environment, the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. In the image of God, what does that mean, to be in the image of God? God created man, in the image of God created he him. You have self-consciousness. You have a conscience. You have consciousness. Not like animals but a self-consciousness, a self-conscience, a cognition, an ability to process information, to reason. You are intelligent, despite what some people tell you. You are intelligent. You are incredibly creative. You have been gifted from the Creator with creativity. Have you ever seen a dolphin build a skyscraper? Do penguins manufacture pharmaceuticals? Of course not. We find that to be laughable. God made us creative in the nature and the image of God. Have you recently been to any of the magnificent cathedrals that were built over the years? Look at some of the cathedrals and the sculptures that have taken place by the images of man. Man man has been incredibly creative over the centuries. Let's keep rolling through those. The Sistine Chapel. Can you imagine? Look at these incredible structures. God gifted us with the ability to create, to reproduce. That's part of what it means to be in His image. The artwork of the masters, the Mona Lisa. I don't know if any of you have traveled to Europe and have been to the Louvre and seen some of the incredible artwork. The museums around here. Listen to the sound of Beethoven in the performance of the Fifth Symphony. Walk in and out of those cathedrals. Walk into museums. Listen to the art of the masters. 
both musically and visually. And look at the stamp of creation on you. Now, I haven't been to Potter Park Zoo in a long time, to the primate section, but last time I was there, they had not built a cathedral. There is nothing that's been constructed by animal life. They take what we give them for food when they're in zoos. They capture what they can when they're in the wilderness. But to do this, we are unique. We are created in the image of God. God created us in his image. He gave you self-consciousness. He gave you rationality, intelligence, creativity. Over all the earth, none has been given the privilege to rule like you have. What are some of your other godly attributes? What other images do you have of God? Anger? Absolutely. Love? Incredible compassion. Wrath? Vengeance? Patience? Those are all attributes of God in the image of God. And with the formation of man that we're going to examine today, the real story of creation began. Everything else that's taken place that we've examined over the last seven weeks have just been a stage, a backdrop to the arrival of the real purpose that God did all that he did for you, for your arrival. Genesis chapter 5 is the first time we actually even get to hear his name. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and named them man. He named them man, plural. In the day when they were created. It isn't even until chapter 2 that we discover what Adam's name is. And then in chapter 5, we're told God actually named us. Look at the name Adam. Adam, ruddy, of the earth, a human being, the species mankind. Adam is Adam in Hebrew. Eve was as much Adam, Adam, as Adam was. We are all Adam. God called us Adam, mankind. We are of the earth. Genesis 1 tells us that he did it. Genesis 2 tells us how he did it. So I want you to go there with me now to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4. It'll be up on the screen if you don't have your Bibles with you. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Mangoes, coconuts, oranges, cherries, pears, Apples, Scripture says every tree, it was all there, all in one location. Now Genesis 2 points forward. It's looking forward to man's account of his arrival and all that he does on the earth. 
Genesis 1 is like the headlines in the newspaper. Man created in God's image. And Genesis 2 is the subtitle, the articles all underneath. And man's now put on center stage. I want to take just a minute with you and look at verse 5 a little more closely because this is a verse that's challenged by many people who are outside the church because it seems like it's inconsistent with what we just read in chapter 1. Verse 5 says this, Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. That verse right there is used to discredit Scripture for people who are outside the kingdom. And they use it for this reason. They say, oh wait, back in Genesis chapter 1, it says on day 3, God created all the vegetation. Well, actually, that's not exactly what it says. It says he caused all the vegetation to sprout forth. But here in verse 5, it says, now no shrub of the field was yet in the, in the earth. The shrub actually is referring to the weeds that arrived after the fall of man. The shrub of the earth, and that's why it says, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, because we know that rain came after the fall. And it also says there was no man to cultivate the ground. Man wasn't sent out to cultivate, to work the earth, until after the fall. So this is just giving us kind of a pre-sin environment image of what the setting was like. No weeds. Farmers among me, can you resonate amen to that? Absolutely no weeds. Only perfect vegetation that was for the purpose of man. It is no small thing to deny the straightforward account of the book of Genesis. God takes this very seriously. And so when people take that and misinterpret that or misapply it and say, well, therefore you can dismiss the book of Genesis, they're dismissing the entire scripture. If we cannot stand on the book of Genesis, then we may as well not accept the rest of Scripture because it is the foundation of all that we believe. Verse 7 says this. I want to show you why I said what I just said. Verse 7 says, Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now link that all the way forward into the middle of the Bible, into the book of Job. Job says this, Your hands fashioned me and made me all together. Link it again. Jump all the way forward a couple thousand years into the New Testament. Jesus himself said this, Have you not read that he who made them in the beginning made them male and female? And then Paul carries that same imagery all the way into the book of Romans. God created us ex nihilo, out of nothing. And all of Scripture says that. From Genesis all the way through the New Testament, it's proclaimed, God made us. We did not come from evolution. God formed us from his hands. We are made up of about 15 different chemicals. Oxygen, carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, calcium. Those are the primary ones. About 15 chemical types. Not a whole lot different than the smallest particles of the earth. What you would find in dirt, in the earth, in atoms, are the same atoms that you will find in your own body. You look at a rock, that's a very inanimate thing. It has no characteristics. But God said, from the earth, I formed you. From the soil. What makes us different? 
we're, if we're made out of the same basic chemical elements. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 47. The first man is of the earth. All the way through Scripture, it's a very consistent story. But you cannot explain man by the chemical elements that we're made up from. It doesn't explain the soul, the core essence of who you are. Now let's step back to the garden scene, amen. We're back in the garden, and there we find the sculptor shaping the earth, moving the clay, hawks circling above, giraffes looking in. What's going on here? It's a very quiet environment. The same God who spoke everything into existence has stopped speaking and actually gone down and crafted this, his highest creation. I find that an incredibly remarkable image because what happens next from within his being as he bends over this form he draws a ruach and he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. That's what Scripture says. Ruach, the breath of God, the Spirit of God. Verse 7, God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. What did Adam see when he first opened his eyes? I think he saw the image of the Creator. I think he saw what we see as children when we're first born. We look at our parents. What could he see? Perhaps God was invisible to him. We don't know that. But what a wonderful thought that the God who spoke everything else into existence took time to shape and form us. One of the most remarkable images in all of Scripture God crafted us from his own hands. But what is even more staggering than that is how he brings that being to life. This is not CPR taking place. He breathes into him the breath of life. The Ruach Elohim, the breath of God. Angels have not seen this to this point. Scripture tells us that the angels were present, watching creation, singing over the foundations of the earth. And at this moment, the Creator, the King of the universe, <sighs> was the reaction that the lungs filled with the air? Was there a reaction that the heart began to pump? Or was the reaction that it's eternal? It's a soul. Let's look at Scripture and see if we can figure that out. And man became a living being. First we have breath, nafak. That's the word. Let's go back to that one. Nafak, to puff, literally to blow. When someone performs CPR, that's what they do. If they breathe into someone's mouth to resuscitate them, it's nafak. They bring their lungs back full of air. It inflates them. But the second component is what they cannot do. They cannot breathe in the breath of life, a soul. And that's what Scripture brings to us when it says, and man became a living being. Jump back one to that Tyler again. 
and man became a living being. The word is nefesh. It became a soul. Now, it's very important that you understand that word because I want to take you to three verses. There's three appearances that I found in Scripture that actually reflect this word. We find it again in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 15.45, it says, The first man, Adam, was made a living soul, was made a nefesh. But then I found it again in Psalms 33.6. And it says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. So we have the creation of man and the creation of the universe by the, the Ruach Elohim of God. But then I found it in a third place. Look at this. 2 Timothy 3.16 All Scripture is nefesh by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. All these same verses have the same meaning to them. That God inspired it. God breathed it. Nefesh. God brought it to life. He gave it its purpose. God gave you your purpose. All of Christian theology rises or falls on the absolute authenticity of these scriptures. And so when God says in 2 Timothy 3.16, I breathed life into these scriptures. I brought nefesh into them. I inspired them. We dare not take these lightly. The secular world has long since understood this more than many in the church. Read this quote from a man who is an atheistic evolutionist from 1903. I am fairly at a loss to comprehend how anyone for a moment can doubt that Christian theology must stand or fall with the historical trustworthiness of the Jewish scriptures. The very conception of the Messiah is inextricably interwoven within Jewish history. The identification of Jesus of Nazareth as Messiah rests upon the interpretation of the passages of the Hebrew Scriptures, which have no evidential value unless they possess the historical character assigned to them. Mr. Huxley was a follower of Darwinianism. He actually pushed Darwinianism more into the culture than Darwin did himself. And he understood that everything rises and falls on this. We cannot deviate from the Word of God. And if indeed there is a universal war between God the Creator and Lucifer, then it is true that Lucifer, the fallen one, the Satan, the highest created order of God, would take a third of the angels and wipe them out of heaven with himself. If that is all true and we understand all that, is it not also reasonable to conclude that that same devious individual would attempt to perpetuate a lie that is upon mankind to help us to distrust the very Word of God, to try and break the relationship? In the same way that the father of lies, that's what Jesus called him, in the same way that the father of lies deceived angels in heaven and rebelled against God, and then also deceived Adam and Eve in the garden and rebelled against God again, he has arrived again with what I believe to be one of the greatest lies ever perpetuated upon mankind, the theory of evolution. You cannot have it both ways. It is beyond our capacity to understand. 
unless we understand the word of God and trust it, that Satan is so devious and so far beyond our comprehension that he has crafted this for a very, very long time. It is only recently within the two last 200 years of man's existence upon the earth has he perpetuated this lie. I think he knows his time is near. This is one way to break the relationship. Certainly, if you look at many of the mainline denominational churches who have closed their doors, it is because they have deviated away from the Word of God. I can point you to one major denomination in the United States who have closed 27,000 churches since 1972. That denomination has moved away from the teaching, the literal interpretation of the Word of God. It is a very dangerous thing to play with God's Word. There's a great Christian author. His name is Andy McIntosh. I'd like you to hear this quote from him because it reinforces what I'm saying. Once creation, the fall, and the flood are brought into question as history, then this brings immediately into disrepute not just the statements of the apostles, but of the Lord Jesus Christ, who also appealed to Genesis as history. The whole meaning of sin and redemption is blurred and lost if we lose the anchor of Genesis. As a church, as a people set apart for the kingdom of God, I challenge you not to mourn over what's going on in culture. Not to say, I remember a day in the 1950s when we prayed in school. There was a time 200 years ago when our founding fathers honored the word of God. That's all true, but it isn't present today. And so you have an opportunity today to say, am I going to engage culture instead of mourning over it? Am I going to step into it and say, we know the truth, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we're going to stand for that. But too many people within the church are caught up in cowering underneath. We are challenged to engage culture. You can either abandon culture and many sects have done that, have moved away. You can conform to culture, or you can engage culture and take it head on and say, I have studied the creation. I understand the book of Genesis. You are wrong. Not enough people say that today because we're too afraid of being politically incorrect. I don't mind being politically incorrect if I'm on God's side. That's the position we need to take. All that I've shared with you over the last eight weeks, all that Moses wrote in the book of Genesis, he could not have known. He wasn't there. Only if God told him. Only if God said, Moses, this is the way it happened. And I think we've shown over the last seven weeks, clearly, the things that are written about in Scripture are authenticated today in science. They don't need to be compatible with science, but in every case that we've looked at so far, there is no inconsistency. And so it is. We come to the book of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews speaks very clearly about how these worlds came into order. And it says this, look on the screen. Hebrews 11.3. We understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. There's something missing there, isn't there? What's the blank? The blank. We understand. Is it by faith? 
Amen. By faith we understand. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. It's not the product of human reason. It's not the product of great Hebrew research of the scriptures. It's not the product of a science lab. It is through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. Maybe that's why the scriptures say, without faith, it is impossible to please God. I'm going to close with a quote that you wouldn't expect me to close with. I want you to see this because this is what the world really, really believes. Evolution is the most powerful, most comprehensive idea that has ever arisen on the earth. Julian Huxley. I'm going to agree with him. I'm going to agree with him to this point. It is the greatest satanic lie that has ever been perpetuated upon mankind in the history of the earth. Because it has caused God's people, His creation, who have the Ruach Elohim within them, to say, I'm going to exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for what I learned in 8th grade science class. That's a devious, devious Lucifer. Do not question who you're up against when you question evolution. The claims of Jesus Christ, the hope of all mankind, our own eternal destiny, rest on what we believe about what God wrote in here. Do not doubt that. So you've got Jesus back on the cross. And he says, Today you'll be with me in paradise. He's speaking to an individual who in his whole life has been in bondage. Corrupt, criminal, deserved to die, admitted by his own mouth. We deserve to die. This one has done no wrong. And Jesus still, at the very last moment, released him by saying, I know what paradise really looks like, and I can take you back there. We had paradise at one time. It was through the fall that we destroyed what we had. Next week, we're going to look at paradise. We're going to look at the fall. We're going to see what happened in the garden. For now, I think I've infused you with enough energy to go out and take on culture. You need to engage your coworkers. And I don't mean in a method in which you are in their face, but I mean in gentle, godly conversation, saying, What you were taught is not entirely right. What we have done over the last seven weeks has been what's called in, in seminary schools apologetics looking clearly at the defense of the gospel with truth revealed to us. And it's fun. Studying the Bible can be a lot of fun. I leave you with that thought. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for revealing to us things that we wouldn't know unless your spirit was at work. It is only your spirit that gives us clarity and understanding because 
Admittedly, if we were without you, these things would look like foolishness. That's what your word says, that these things appear as foolishness to the world because they are not indwelt with your spirit. God, we understand that we are eternal and that we have a soul and you gave us free choice either to receive you or reject you. For my brothers and sisters in this room who have received you, I ask that you just make them bold this week. Give them courage. Give them understanding and capacity and wisdom that goes beyond their experience. For individuals who are here just trying to understand this, Father, God, I ask that you would give them the courage just to talk with myself or other leaders in this room. Really, Father, give them the courage to do that. We don't want them to be in bondage. God, we want them to step into paradise. That's what we desire. All these things we ask in the mighty name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. I give you a, just a reminder as you go out this morning that um, there's a baptismal service taking place in a couple weeks, and there's seven individuals signed up for that right now. If you would like to be part of that, don't hesitate to give us a call. We'll probably overflow the water in the tank, but that's okay. And uh, coming up next week, Sunday night, is uh, student ministry night for those in junior high and high school. So take that with you and have an excellent week.